Welcome, welcome, welcome. This is Andrea Venomous, and again, for some reason, the technology gods are not favoring me, so our intro music did not play. But this is Deeper Down the Rabbit Hole, and I'm here with my excellent, most wonderful co-host, Jason Caldwell, and I am Andrea Venomous, and welcome back for another week of fantastic fun and radio. Andrea always gives me the best intros. I know. I'll try. I appreciate it. Well, you know what? Busy schedules and all. We're getting ready for a big weekend coming up. I'm going to meet you in Jackson, Michigan at the Wandering Owl Saturday. This coming Saturday. So let's let's talk about what's going on there, Andrea. It's oh, going to begin at 11... I'm, I'm sorry. Go we're going to do a whole day of ancestor work. So... It should be really fun time. Uh, ancestral work where we're first learning how to do ancestor altars, uh, and, and that's free in the morning. So you know, if you don't have the money, you could just come out to the Wandering Owl in Jackson, and that's just for donations. Well, nobody will be turned away. 11, 11 a.m. to noon. That's correct. And then later in uh, one, we will uh, start to do an advanced ancestral uh, workshop, which uh, we'll have. Which is has some cost at, at 50 but we'll cover stuff down to learning how to talk to your ancestors, getting your ancestors who are perhaps more inclined towards magic and the supernatural to come teach you, as, as well as work through any kind of issues and kind of elevate different ancestors and let go of any kind of history that you have with certain ancestors which all is about elevating you and them. It'll be a great time. And then later in the night from 5 to 8, we're just going to do a full ancestral service. And if people have any actual issues with their ancestors, we'll, me as a priest, uh, we'll, we will work it out like on the spot. Whether it's a chakra issue with mediumship or other issues, we will just completely work it out right then and there. And that's only limited to four people, so I can keep track of everyone and that's a once in a lifetime actually opportunity that'll be 75 dollars each and it is well worth it <clears throat> yep, yep if there's any issues that people have like a certain debt have to be elevated or whatever else we'll i'll take care of it as, as a shaman and a priest so essentially we're going to go through it and if whatever needs to be adjusted we will do it on the spot now, something for those that can't tra travel to us, meet us in Jackson, Michigan. Coming up at the end of the month, March 31st, 9 p.m. to 11 p.m., there's going to be an online vibrational mass of chaos Baphomet. Right, which is sponsored by the uh, Advanced uh, Gallery of Magic Facebook group. So I want to thank them for sponsoring that. And, uh, yeah, we're going to do a big online ceremony, and there's instructions on my website. So you can go to andreavenomous.com, and if you want to participate and be present, you can do so. You just go to the website, and all the instructions are up there, and look for the Vibrational Master Chaos on the 31st first in my events, and you'll see it, and you can just participate. And then, of course, later in August, we have the Conjure Fest, which I'm headlining at, Detroit Conjure Fest. Uh... Okay. Don't know the exact date. The exact date of that is, in fact, August 12th uh, from 11 to 7 p.m. And then 
Detroit, Michigan. Uh, so it should be a blast. There's lots, tons and tons of people. And can you believe this? I still can't believe this. That this event only costs thirty-five bucks if you book an event. Thirty-five dollars. Uh, yep. I think I think now it's going to go up because they're past the the what do you call? It? This is a day of hardcore actual uh, classes where people are teaching people. It's just just an amazing thing. So it's probably going to go up a little because they're past the uh, early board, and um, it's crazy. But this, be a crazy this event. is definitely the kind of event you normally would have to go down south to be able to even attend. That's right. And once again, in Detroit, you don't have to because Detroit is swinging hardcore with this uh, this Contrafest. That'll be a fantastic uh, time. Uh, so if you're in Ohio, if you're in Michigan, Illinois, even Indiana, Pens- like, Pennsylvania, yeah, Pennsylvania, yeah, come Pennsylvania's on out, not yeah. too far. Come on, spend the day. It'll be fun. Now, (laughs) coming up on April Fool's Day, 7 to 8 p.m. at the Spirit Apothecary. That's right, we're going to teach you basic basic class on evocation and invocation. And, uh, of course, right before that, we do the Stories of the Chaos, uh, which on Facebook Live. So you're more than welcome to come, and uh, it'll be a fantastic time. Because where else can you get a cult books and get some coffee? and dessert and they have excellent selection on all of the above and that's at of course at spirit apothecary which we're always woke is always awesome so we're definitely letting you know about this stuff and we're going to keep you posted with some more events um i could tell you what's further down the line but we'll wait till next week to give you more details that is that is right but uh if you want to see jason who doesn't usually come out to stuff he will actually be up in with us at the what do you call and we do have one other thing to announce <laughs> we do have one more last po- thing to announce is that in the cleveland pagan pride we will now be doing the main ritual oh should we should we give them a little detail nah we'll let just drip it Surprise. out week by week that's correct week by week we'll okay. just, just let it on out just well, a little bit just get ready it, that's that's also in august i believe it definitely is in the uh, last weekend of August. All right. So the end of summer, you're going to see way too much of us. <laughs> yeah, that's what it sounds like, doesn't it? <laughs> well, that being said, is there anything else you want to put out there before I introduce tonight's special guest? No, I think tonight we have a, uh, a real unique uh, experience for everyone uh, in Radioland, I think. Uh, Jason and me keep getting more and more interesting guests, and I think today is an, just one of the phenomenal type shows that deviate a little bit from our normal show, but it really gets to some points that we, we try to talk to about on a regular basis. But you don't have to take our word for the things that we've seen. What if we told you you could take a doctor's words for some of the miracles that were possible? And that's the and- purpose of today's show. We've never had a medical doctor on the show before either. That's correct. Tonight, I'd like to welcome Dr. Scott J. Kobaba. Dr. Kobaba is an internist in private practice in Wheaton, Illinois. He graduated from the University of Illinois College of Medicine in honors and did his residency at Rush Presbyterian St. Luke's Medical Center in Chicago at the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota, 
He has also been awarded membership in Alpha Omega Alpha Honor Medical Society, has been featured in Chicago Magazine as a top doctor in internal medicine. How are you doing this evening, Dr. Kobaba? I'm doing great, Jason. Good to be here. So, being a man of science and a man of medicine and, and hard facts and lots of study, your, your new book, Physicians Untold Stories, touches on a lot of things that could be considered miraculous and supernatural. What inspired you to collect these stories from other medical doctors, sir? Well, you know, I, I had a few strange experiences myself, and uh, it got me thinking about how, you know, whether or not uh, these things that, that science couldn't explain really do exist. And then the tipping point <clears throat> happened when I was making rounds at our hospital, and one of the orthopedic surgeons, uh, Dave Mokel, ran up to me literally and said, Scott, I've got to tell you this incredible story. I said, okay, tell it to me. He said, well, I can't tell you here. I said, well, why not? And he said, well, somebody might hear it. And I said, well, what difference does it make? And he said, well, th they'll think I'm crazy. So we went into an empty patient room, and it was a mutual patient he was telling me about, Mary. And uh, Mary was, uh, Dave's an uh, orthopedic surgeon, he was operating on her ankle. And during the operation, she arrested, cardiac arrest, flatlined, no pulse, no respirations, eyes closed, no response to pain. She was dead, basically. And so they called a code. And in the, in the operating room, when they call a code, everyone rushes in from the operating rooms around. And there was one of the techs that came in with bright red hair that was underneath his uh, operating room hat. <clears throat> and he started to do the CPR, the chest compressions. Well, Dr. Mokel, who's in charge of the code, couldn't feel a pulse. So he knew he, was, she, he wasn't doing the compressions properly, so he said, step aside. Well, the fellow didn't step aside, and codes are not polite things. Codes are life and death. So if something happens in a code, you don't have to be uh, dainty. You, you do what you have to do. Uh -huh. so again, you know, please step aside. He didn't step aside, so Dr. Mokel gave him a push and shoved him away. Started to do the CPR himself, and hold on a second now, because if I remember correctly, I I remember this story. Uh huh. Did did the doctor give him more like a hard elbow to the chest? He gave him a hard push. <laughs> and okay. He stumbled away, and there was no question what Doctor Mocha wanted to do, and uh, he was pretty assertive at the time. And he's a, he's a mild-mannered <laughs> guy. He's you know you wouldn't think that he would he would do that, but you know this is a life and death situation. She's dying on the table. She he's not doing chest compressions adequately enough, and and he's right. got to do something. So after some epinephrine and a few other IV drugs, she did come around, and they discovered that it was the IV antibiotic that caused her to arrest. So she eventually was moved out of the operating room. They didn't do the operation, obviously, and she was moved onto the floor where the the intensive care unit where the cardiologist took over and, and they did all kinds of studies and eventually turned out that it was the antibiotic. And a couple of days later, you know, she was fine. And when she was about ready to leave, Dr. Mokel came to, to discuss, you know, what to do as far as instructions for the ankle and so forth. And she said, thank you for saving my life. And Dr. Mokel, who's a pretty humble guy, said, no, that's, you know, it's a team effort. We all chipped in and did what we could. And she said, no, no, I saw you push that guy with the red hair aside. And I saw you take over the, the, the CPR. And after that, I came around. Well, by this point, Dr. Mokel had some weak knees and he had to sit down because he didn't know how she could know that, that he pushed that guy aside. And she went on to say, you know, I saw all these other things that happened during this code. I saw you page Dr. Kolbaba and he didn't come because he wasn't in the hospital. You kept looking at the door and multiple other little facts. And Dr. Mokel finally said, well, how did you know this? And well, she said, when I, when I arrested, I went up to the top of the room and I looked down and I could see everything that was happening. 
And while I was there, my grandmother came to me, and who had been dead for about 10 years, and told me that it wasn't my time to go. I would have to come back. But if I was a, a good, honest, caring person, that there would be a special place for me where she was, and they would they would save a place uh, just just for me. And and so Dr. Mokel uh, didn't know what to say. He's a very scientific kind of a guy. You know, this didn't make any sense. Uh, he couldn't explain it. He kept going over in his mind, how can this how can this be? But you know, she mentioned so many details of the code that she had to have watched it, and and no one could even told have told her all the details. So after that, he got to thinking about this whole thing, and, and he told his wife, and that's all. And then he had to tell me, because it was a mutual patient, he just was bursting with, with you know, how, how explain this to me. And after he told me that story, uh, and also, by the way, Mary, who had came out of the, the code, uh, what before that was kind of a curmudgeon. You know, you, you didn't like to see her in the office. She'd always be complaining. There was always something wrong. After the code, she was the most kind, gentle person you can imagine. She helped her widowed father. She was she helped all kinds of people. She didn't live very long because she had lots of medical problems, but she was the most incredible person. And I ended up calling the the story the, the Mary's Christmas Carol, because it was like Scrooge, you know, coming back from 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 uh, you know another life. And so after I heard that story, I thought. I wonder if other doctors have had stories like this because docs don't talk about these things. Docs don't talk about deep things. They talk about uh, the gallbladder that they took out the day before or somebody had a heart attack or whatever, uh, or about their vacation or whatever, but not these kinds of, of deep stories. And so this got me thinking about whether or not uh, I should ask other doctors if they've had these experiences because I, I, I didn't know of any. And sure enough, a couple of days later, uh, just by coincidence probably, another doctor came up to me and said, I've got a story to tell you. And um, are, are you interested in another one? Of course. Oh, absolutely. Well, this one this one was by Dr. Heim, who's another orthopedic surgeon. And um, he'd just gotten back from a little mini vacation in Colorado. And he and his wife and his wife's sister were skiing, and he's an expert skier. He's a phenomenal athlete. He can do. He, he used to be in the in the uh, Navy working with the SEALs, and he could do a thousand. He could still do a thousand push-ups and a thousand sit-ups. He's really in great shape. Uh, and they were skiing on this back mountain where you know he's a he's an expert skier. He skis on these triple black diamond mountains. And when they got to the top of the mountain, the blizzard hit, and they could hardly see down the the mountain. And and it was a new mountain, so they didn't know exactly where they were going so they got off the map and they tried to do the best they could but they had to ski down and the temperature dropped the snow was blowing sideways and upside down and so they started skiing down and after about a couple hundred yards they came to a, a grove of trees in the middle of the, the, the uh, path and they had to go to the right or the left so Dr. Heim went to the left and the girls went to the, to the Dr. Heim went to the right the girls went to the left and after Dr. Heim realized that he would separate it from the girls he decided to go back through the, through the trees and, and ski back to where the girls were well, all of a sudden, a strange thing happened. Everything became silent. The wind was blowing, the snow was coming down, the temperature was still dropping, but it was silent. And he thought this was really bizarre. And he could hear the, 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 the snow crunch underneath his skis. He could hear his, his breath. And uh, he felt this, this sense of dread, of impending doom, that something was happening that he needed to be involved with, that he was being called to do something that had life and death implications. So he stopped skiing. So here he is, the girls are waiting for him on their side, he's right in the middle of this grove of trees, and he stops skiing. He has no idea what he's doing there, and he takes off his skis, and he stood there for a minute, trying to 
figure out what's what's happening. But he felt this overwhelming urge to climb back up the mountain in the opposite direction from where the girls are waiting. So he, he the ski is on his shoulder. He's climbing up the mountain. He can hear the, again the snow crunch is getting colder and colder. The snow's crunching under his shoes. He hears his breath. He's huffing and puffing because it's a hard climb. He's five feet of powdered snow, climbing, walking, climbing, walking. And he came to this big pine tree. Now, when you have that much snow, uh, there's a thing called a tree well, where the snow comes down to the base of the tree, and it forms like a big bowl. And he came to the la- a large tree and stood there for a minute, not knowing what, what he was doing and ready to go around the tree, when all of a sudden he looked down and realized why he was there. Under the tree, there was a body covered in snow. Now, he's a trauma surgeon. What better, surge, what better person to come across a, a body in the, in, the, in the woods than a trauma surgeon? So he knew exactly what to do. He brushed off his head and looked to see if he was breathing. He wasn't breathing. He looked like he was dead. He had a gray face, and this is a, a skier that must have hit the tree. And so, but he knew one other thing to do, and that is put his hand on the carotid artery in the neck to see if there was a pulse. And sure enough, there was a pulse. It was a very thready pulse. He could tell the person was in shock because the pulse wasn't very strong at all. Then he was near death. So he brushed off all the snow, put his head down, covered him with his two jackets, and started to call for help. Help! Help! Very few skiers were on the mountain. As a matter of fact, one of the last skiers down the mountain heard his cry for help and came to his side and said, what can I do? And Dr. Himes said, go to the nearest phone and call the ski patrol. As soon as you can, this guy's almost dead. He's ready to, you know, he's hypothermic. He's in shock. And so he went down, the other skier who took off went down to the the nearest phone, must have called the ski patrol, because about 20 minutes later, he saw a snowmobile with a gurney being pulled by the snowmobile come up to where he was located, loaded the the unconscious skier onto the snowmobile. In the meantime, Dr. Himes splinted his leg with some of his underclothes and and a tree branch because he had a broken leg. And they they, they took him off to the uh, to the lodge down uh, down down the down the hill. They took him off to the hospital where, where an ambulance was waiting. And so then Dr. Heim finally uh, was pretty cold himself. Realized how cold it was. Suddenly put his jackets back on and 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 got back to where the girls were still waiting for him. And they skied down the mountain. There was waiting for him his reward, a cup of hot chocolate. Hmm. The next day, he called up the hospital and said, what happened to this guy that I that uh, I ran across and, and called the ski patrol on? And they said, he's perfectly fine this morning. He's awake. He's alert. The orthopedic surgeons were impressed with your splinting of his broken leg, and it looks like he's going to be fine. And Dr. Himes' comment was, you know, you've got to believe that there's something else in this world than, than our mere existence here. When I was called to do this very thing, and who better to do it than a trauma surgeon that probably saved the guy's life? If, if he wouldn't have come across him, it's no question that he would have been there till the springtime because the snow is coming down and it would be hard to find him in the, in the snow. Yeah, I mean, and this, this is a doctor who, um, for his side fun, goes and races Porsches. Porsches, it's not somebody that you necessarily would believe in psychic phenomenon or no, uh, he- stuff like that. He has a collection of Porsches, and uh, he, t- he tells me that uh, it's pretty safe racing, although he went through a 16-inch beam once and broke the beam like a matchstick. Safe racing. He's, he's a little on the wild side, and he doesn't believe he's, he's not a religious person. He doesn't go to church. He has no organized religion. But he told me after this, he, he believes there's something higher than us, that there's, there's got to be something that directed him to this, to this hypothermic skier. And uh, after that story, then I thought, there's something 
there's something that's telling me I need, to, I need to do more of this because two stories like this right in a row and a couple of my stories before that, uh, somebody, somebody wants me to do something here. And so that's when I uh, called one of my, you know, doctors have patients that do everything, you know, like barbers. Barbers have uh, clients that, that uh, are painters and, and roofers and doctors and dentists and so forth. And just I, I, as a doctor, I have patients that do pretty much everything also. So I, I had a publisher that was in charge of a publishing house. And so I, I thought, maybe I'll, I'll talk with him and, and see if he thinks that these stories are worth publishing. So we had lunch one day, and we were talking, and I was pretty hungry, so I didn't pay attention to what he was doing very much, and I was telling my stories to see if he thought they were of interest. And I was eating and telling stories and eating and telling stories, and after about two or three stories, I happened to look up, and, and he's sitting there not eating, and he had tears in his eyes. And I said to myself, unconsciously or, or subconsciously, there's got to be something here that I need to write about. And that's exactly what he said. He said, these are powerful stories. You have to write these down because doctors don't talk about these stories and, and no one has stories like this uh, from the doctor community. And so I did. And that's how I got started. I think we and Jason were uh, talking before the show. In fact, we're like, it's almost a taboo for doctors to have stories like these. Uh, so it's quite an accomplishment to actually have collected them and and there was over like i thought 200 people that you'd had or 200 stories that you'd had collected and these were like the the best of the best yeah i, I talked with a bunch of doctors and in in, in in uh in answering your first uh, uh question the doctors were afraid of telling these stories and i kept thinking to myself why would these doctors come forward and tell me these these incredible stories and the reason they were afraid was because you know these are ordinary docs these are not crazy doctors these have regular practices these are doctors that do you know want to do good in the world every day and if they have patients that find out they have visions they have dreams they they see things that others didn't see or they had a premonition about a patient and they acted on that premonition that therefore saved the patient's life patients would think they're crazy. And so they really stuck their necks out. And I, I thought to myself, why would these doctors come forward like this and, and, and be willing to have these books not only, or these stories not even, not only told to me, but also published in a book. And there are a couple of things that came to mind. One is, I'm, I've been around for about 35 years and they know me really well. They know that I'm not gonna exaggerate their story or tell any lies, so I think they trusted me. But I think the, the big thing was, these doctors and most doctors uh, who now are, are getting a, a bad rap in the world are, are really do-gooders. And they really wanted people and patients to have hope. They wanted them to know that there's something else out there that, that looks out for them, that loves them, that participates in our lives. And they wanted that more than the risk of losing patients because they told uh, these amazing stories. And it's turned out that the doctors that did participate have gotten some notoriety in the community. People love them even more and they recognize them as real people. And everyone, I think, every person or every family has a story like this. I think if you talk to people and really get into a deep conversation, you'll find that there's some bizarre thing, there's some uh, unusual circumstance that happens to either everyone or every family. And they all have stories like this. And I think people can relate to that. 
and I think they're saying to themselves, thank goodness doctors are coming out say, telling these stories because I have one too. And now it's okay for me to tell my story. And that's what happens to me. People come and they're telling me their stories now, which is really fun and really, and really interesting. Well, what you don't know about me, Dr. Kobaba, I've been a paranormal investigator for over 20 years. And <clears throat> what you're saying is very true. I think more people than you would think at face value have had extraordinary experiences. Yes. And it's not, they don't feel safe until the conversation gets started. They don't want to be viewed as, oh, everybody's going to think I'm the crazy one. And that's what the doctors felt too. I think they felt exactly like that. And, and it was really interesting that one of the doctors wanted to be anonymous. And after we launched the book and he saw what, what uh, kind of attention this was getting and what, what uh, accolades the doctors were getting, he said, I don't want to be anonymous anymore. Tell people who I am. And that was kind of <laughs> Nice. Yeah. So, being there, working in working in hospitals, being right at the threshold of life and death, um, I want to ask because this wasn't. There was a case where I remember someone saw the uh, the spirit of their grandmother standing behind the doctor and giving them guidance at one point. Mm-hmm. Uh, what kind of stories have you heard in passing about ghostly activity within the hospitals? You know, I before I started writing this book, nothing. I, I heard absolutely nothing. But because again, doctors don't talk about this, nurses don't talk about this. And just when I started to collect stories and people began to know what I was doing and they felt safe telling me these stories because other doctors and other nurses had come forward with these stories. Um, so I, I've heard nothing before before this. Okay. And so so um uh, and so I was, I was shocked. I was shocked and surprised and, and, and in awe because there are some amazing things that happen to these doctors that have resulted in lives being saved and, and uh, amazing things have happened that they don't talk about ever. So I, I was very, very surprised. Well, let's have you address something that's, that's really stood out to you and inspired you that, that you weren't able to include in this book. Maybe it came in after the fact. Well, you know, there is a, um, a story that, that came in. I haven't verified this story, so but I, we, I've been on some talk shows, and, and this was a story that was, was told on the, on the talk show by one of the doctors, and I'm pursuing the, the details and so forth, but it was an amazing story, and, and it was a story about a, a young doctor that had just graduated from uh, medical school, then gone to his residency, finished his residency, and was just, just uh, starting in, in practice. And this young doctor had a father who was a, a doctor also. And the father said to the young doctor, um, you know, you've got your MD degree, but I really don't consider you a doctor yet. You need an experience. And then, then I'll tell you when you're a doctor. And the young guy was a little bit up, upset about this. You know, he worked his tail off to get through medical school residency, and his dad doesn't even recognize him as a full-fledged doctor yet. So mm-hmm. he did for a while. And... Uh, he was driving uh, with all of his equipment and everything to a medical meeting in California, and he uh, came to a uh, an expressway. Came to a uh, or it was a major highway. I don't know. If it was an expressway. He came to a, a, a hill. And on the top of the hill, there was this boy that was waving hysterically, you know, and pointing down to turn on this particular road. And so he felt uh, compelled to, to to follow with what that that boy was doing, just because he was he, he was so. You know, it was such a sense of urgency that he had in his face. So he turned down the road and he went down a little ways and 
all of a sudden at the bottom of the hill he came across a school bus that had, had been in an accident and he was the first one on on the scene for the accident so he, he drove up he, he knew what to do and they evidently the front of the bus was smashed and he couldn't get into the front so he got into the back door and he took care of the kids that were bleeding and various things that that had happened to the kids and and reassured them and and really was an incredible help on this school bus and he got to the front of the bus and there was the, the ca- a casualty one of the one of the kids had had died from the from the crash and he looked at the kid's face it was the same kid that was on the hill waving to him to come down the road oh man oh, wow wow so he got goosebumps just like you and I did after, after I told that and then after that was all settled he got the all the kids you know securely taken care of ambulances arrived and so forth uh, he told his dad the story, and his dad said, "You're you're now a doctor. You've had the experience." So I thought that was a pretty good story. And there are lots. <laughs> of back That's a harsh dad, actually. Wow. <laughs> I think that so. uh, <laughs> that that actually uh, alludes to a lot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and and we should point out that um, all the stories in, in the book, physicians untold stories, are. You've actually vetted all of them. They're, they're, it's like you said, this one didn't make it in because it wasn't quite get. It wasn't vetted enough yet. No, um, no. But all, all the ones in there, the uh, the stories in there have been fully vetted. Yeah, I I know all these docs really really well, and I made sure that that and and, and none of these docs. Uh, None of the docs tell tall, tall tales, you know, and, and there are some docs that do tell tall tales, and I didn't even get near them. Uh, but these are doctors that are ordinary docs. They're in private practice. They see patients in all different specialties, neurosurgery, neurology, uh, orthopedics, ER, uh, general medicine. And so I, I know them very well. And when I talk with them about their stories, I went back and we went back and forth many, many times to get the story exactly right. And one of my comments to them was, you know, this story is so fantastic. You don't need to exaggerate anything to me. This story speaks for itself. And this, and I thought I heard lots of stories, but I only included the stories that gave me goosebumps or made me cry, not out of sadness, but out of pure emotion. And and there were some really emotional stories there that 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 move me and and move everyone that reads them. And and I think um, that you know they all point to something else out there. There's there's a force out there. Most of the docs call it God, but you can call it whatever you want. There's something else that participates in our lives. And I think each of these stories points to to that. And then also points to the love that uh, that exists between people, between family members, and between this force, this God, and and ourselves. Certainly, certainly. So. What do you think about the extraordinary coma circumstances where someone is in a full medical coma, not registering significant brain activity, but yet they've come out of that coma, sometimes against all odds, and started to relate facts, experiences, the people that came and visited them, what was said to them while they were in that coma? Because this right here, heavily defies logical thought because you can measure brain activity and yes. if the brain activity is not there that the person should not be cognizant right tell us more about this kind of phenomenon well, well that happens and people are always surprised when they find out that that uh, a person who was in a deep coma may have really been aware of things there was an example of this that i, I wrote about in the book um 
John John Messet is a uh, is a uh, gynecologist, and he had a good friend, uh, Cornell Bob Cornell is his name, and Bob Cornell was a was a uh, family practice doc, and and Dr. Cornell would sometimes call Dr. Messet in to to do deliveries with him that were more complicated deliveries. And they were good friends, and every morning they met in the physician lounge, every morning that they could, and they just had a little chat about things that were happening, and, and uh, John Messett and, and Cornell were great fishermen, and especially Cornell, and he could he could tell you what lure to use in any body of water in the United States and probably half the countries in the world. And so they were they were great friends. They never went out for some reason or fished together, but they always met in the, in the doctor's lounge. Well, one day... Uh, Bob Cornell wasn't there, and, and Dr. Messett found out that he had a massive stroke, and he was in a coma in the intensive care unit, so he went to visit him. And um, it was such a deep coma that uh, he had very little brain activity, if any, and the uh, intensivist who was in, in the in the you know, ICU taking care of him at the time mentioned to Dr. Messett that, you know, they don't didn't think he was going to live, and, and they were going to watch him just in case for a couple more days, maybe three more days to make sure, and then they'd turn off the ventilator and let him die. So Dr. Messett didn't realize how close they had become. And, you know, you don't realize that until you have a then, then you, until a person's missing and then they're not available to talk with you. So he didn't know what to do. He felt very, very hopeless and helpless. And so he looked around when he was visiting Dr. Cornell and kind of closed the door in the intensive care unit and drew a little bit closer to his old friend and, and who was in a deep coma, eyes closed, unresponsive to any stimulus. And he started to tell them stories. And people kind of, after he told what he was doing to other people, they thought he was a little bit crazy. But, you know, he said, this was a thing that I felt I had to do. This is a thing that I felt uh, uh, to, to, to bond with my, my friend. He told him fishing stories. He told him a story about his fishing in uh, one of the rivers in, in uh, McKenzie River in Canada, where they caught uh, a ton of fish. And how about the whole trip, how they flew in on a pontoon boat, and, and he went through all the details of this to Dr. Cornell. And every day, he would tell him more of the story. And finally, uh, the third day, when it was going to be the, the time that Dr. Cornell was going to schedule to die, basically, they were going to take him off the ventilator, he went in to his room, and the room was dark. The bed was, was taken down, and no one was in the bed, and he thought he was, he was too late. He had died already. So Dr. Messett went up to the nurse and said, what time did Dr. Cornell die? And the nurse kind of laughed at him, which made Dr. Messett a little bit upset. And she said, well, he didn't die. He woke up yesterday and went down to the regular floor. And so uh, Dr. Messett took a couple of days trying to catch up with him because he was going to therapy and everything else. And, and by that time, he went off to a rehab center. But about two weeks later, when Dr. Messett was making rounds, he went into the doctor's lounge, and there was Bob Cornell standing there eating his oatmeal like he would normally do every every morning. And he had a little bit of a, a stutter in his voice, and he couldn't speak very well. But he said to Dr. Messett, uh, John, I want to thank you for telling me those stories. Well, Dr. Messett looked at him and was kind of surprised at, at what he said. And he said, what do you mean? And he said... That story about Mackenzie River was awesome. You never told me that story before. And I loved the one about fishing and how you caught so many fish, your arms hurt that day. And Dr. Messett was totally blown away because, because <laughs> Cornell had been in a, such a deep coma, they were ready to turn off the ventilator and let him die. And he heard every detail of those that fishing story and loved it. And, you know, Messett thought to himself, I wonder... 
and, and you always wonder when a person's so close to death, if if they make a decision, uh, if if they're able to make a decision to stay or come. You've heard people talk about the, you know, crossing the river, crossing mm-hmm. the bridge, going to where the light is from the dark and so forth. And and I think that probably there's something to that. And I think Messet may have actually saved his life by telling him those stories because he's the only one that was crazy enough to tell this guy with a deep coma any kind of story or talk with him at all. And I think he he was so excited about these fishing stories that he wanted to come back, and he did. And so I think people that are in a deep coma may have more uh, faculties than, than we, 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 we realize. So what do you think this says about consciousness? I mean... It, is it is it a misunderstanding? We 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 don't. There's so much that we still do not understand about the brain physically. We or do we you think this is pointing toward consciousness not necessarily being directly attached to the brain? You know, I have no idea. I think this could be a there could be a whole host of things that that can account for this. I think it could be that you know maybe he was out of his body and and hearing it that way. Maybe we have to redefine consciousness. We don't know enough about the brain to say. I I don't know. But okay. uh, I do know that, that there are times when people are very deeply unconscious that they're aware of what we're saying about them. And, and that, that could influence their desire to, to stay or, or leave, I think. So tell us about a case that either you have, you've heard secondhand or seen with your own eyes of these miraculous healings when someone has very significant physical damage and somehow beyond treatment beyond what should be perceptible in their physical details they recover fully and rapidly well there's there's one spectacular case that we had here in in our town of wheaton illinois and that is um, barbara kaminsky who uh, doesn't mind me telling the story at all um, had multiple sclerosis, and she was taken care of by Dr. Tom Marshall, who's a great internist. Very like, uh, he's a, an internist like I am, and she had progressed over many years, like many people with multiple sclerosis. And she became paralyzed; she could hardly walk. She had braces on. Uh, it affected her breathing, so she had a tracheostomy uh, tube, which is a tube in her neck, so she could breathe. She had um, a collapsed lung because uh, she had so many infections in her lung that it eventually uh, collapsed and the diaphragm wasn't working so that she couldn't ventilate that lung very well. And she got had gotten so, so disabled and so bad that they decided to enroll her in hospice. Now hospice is a program, it's a wonderful program for people that have very serious illnesses. Uh, and uh, one of the criteria for enrolling in hospice is you have to certify that the person will live uh, less than six months. Mm-hmm. And Tom Marshall told me that he thought that she was ready to die any minute, and so did her pastor. Pastor Bailey came in and, and saw her, and, and, and he realized, too, that she was on her last legs, that she could hardly breathe, she couldn't see anymore, she had lost her, most of her vision because of her multiple sclerosis, and, and she was pretty much confined in a, in a kind of a wheelchair type of apparatus or bed. And there was a radio show that came on that uh, uh, asked for prayers for people that that, uh, were in tough shape. And they mentioned her name. And so people evidently prayed for her. And and, um, uh, about uh, a week later, the grandmother, no, the aunt came in with a big bag of mail with uh, all the prayers from these people. It was a huge bag. And she put it down and, and they were talking. And um, she said, Barb, look at all these letters that people have 
know, said to you, and, and isn't this wonderful, and so forth. And you know, Barb is pretty out of it still, and and uh, not very responsive. But then uh, some other friends came to visit her, and they were talking. And then Barb heard this voice that she could identify in the, in the back of the room, uh, and she, there was no one there. And, and, and the voice said something like, um, uh, uh, my, my daughter, get up and, and walk. And she was convinced that this was the voice of God. And she immediately got out of bed, the, took the braces off, uh, took her oxygen off, the uh, occupational therapist there went, was hysterical because she said, you can't take the oxygen off. What are you doing? What are you doing? And she immediately went into the room next door and the parents were there and she did a ballet move for the parents and then sat down on the couch. Everyone was totally flabbergasted. The mom got down on her knees and felt her calves because the calves had become very, very thin with all her illness. And now mm -hmm. she had eaten her calves again. She could walk. We seem to be having some technical difficulties. I totally imagine. Okay, we were having a bit of technical difficulties. Both. Yeah, we Skype went out for a minute, but it came back. So go okay. Ahead. So um, she, uh, Barb decided to go to church the next day and show everyone at church because no one expected her to live at all. But she didn't have anything to wear because she'd been so sick for so long that her mom gave away her clothes and didn't expect her to ever need her clothes again. All she had was pajamas and things like that. So they borrowed, they had to borrow some, some clothes from the neighbor. And so she was late for church. And she bounded up the stairs to go to the church. And everyone was in there. And the pastor, was Pastor Bailey, was talking. And she walked into the church and she strolled in like she owned the place. And everyone just... There was there was gasping all over the, all over the church. You can imagine, and the whispers. There's there's Barb Kaminsky. I thought she was dead. I thought she was dying. Wasn't she in a in hospice? And the pastor was so so shocked that he he couldn't he, he couldn't speak. He stopped talking, and then spontaneously, um, they st they all started to sing, uh, and they 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 sang an incredible hymn spontaneously, uh, and everyone's. I think had tears in their eyes because of, of this miraculous experience. And uh, Barb told her story. The next day she went to a doctor's office, Dr. Marshall, who took out the rest of the tubes that she had, the Foley catheter and the, and the tracheostomy tube, and, and she, was, she was healed, totally healed. They did a chest x-ray, the, the paralyzed lung uh, and the paralyzed diaphragm came back. Uh, there was no lung abnormality. And uh, I've, I talked with her, this was about 25 years ago, I talked with her on the phone over the last couple of years, and she's perfectly fine. Because of this uh, miraculous healing, she dedicated her life to helping others. And so she married a, a minister, they live out east, and she does, she says, sappy do-gooder. She does all kinds of wonderful things for people because she felt that she was, her life was saved. And, and, and I can't explain it. This is a total miracle. Nice. That that's huge. I mean, she went from having a collapsed lung to no collapsed lung, um, documented muscular atrophy to having muscle tone, right, all in the blink of an eye. Yeah, it was that quick, 
And her mother was, you know, she, she Barb says to me, my mother, who's no longer living, uh, was was shocked at at my at my legs that they were suddenly full again, and they had my muscles. And uh, evidently, Barb was a ballet person before all this. Uh, she wasn't for many years because of her MS, and and she did right. ballet moves. And the father just all he could do was cry and hug her. It was just an amazing event. I can't explain it except for just this is a miracle. So what do you think about the folks who have come back to say, hey, you know, while this was going on, while I was clinically dead, I saw my dad or I, I saw my my spouse or another relative, yeah. you know, uh, I, I, I visitations think that, from. Yeah, I, 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 I believe that happens. I had there's there's another story I've got that. Um, uh, you know, the ER docs see a lot of this because, you know, they're on the front line of life and death in many cases. They see people that arrest and, and die. And uh, Fred Bolhoffer, who's an ER doc, told me a story very much like that. He had a, a person who uh, had a heart attack, a relatively young person, probably in his uh, 50s or so, that uh, had a heart attack, was arrested in the in the ambulance. And they uh, uh, they brought him into the, to the uh, hospital. They shocked him. He came back, brought him into the uh, hospital, uh, put him. Well, as they were putting him into the room, he arrested again. They had to be shocked again, and then uh, when they brought him into the room, he arrested the third time, and they had to shock him back. And by that point, they got all the uh, IV medications going, and so he, he didn't have any further cardiac arrhythmias because of the medications. And when Dr. Bolhoffer started to talk with him, he looked unusually calm. You know, for a guy that had arrested three times, had been shocked in his chest three times with heavy-duty. Uh, you know, heavy, power, powerful uh, electrical activity. Uh, he's, he looked too calm to to be believable. And, and Dr. Um, Bohoffer said, "You know what? What? Uh, why do you look so? You know, what? Aren't you upset about this?" And he said, I, "You know, when I was when I was gone, um, I my uh, my ex-wife came in to see me, and and uh, and then my." Uh, uh, then next, my my father uh, came in to see me, and then my brother. And Dr. Bullhofer said, "Well, that that's nice. Are they going to be visiting you here in the hospital?" And 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 the fellow said, "Well, no, they they're not." And he said, well, "Why not?" And he said, "They all died in the past, and they all came to me and they stood by me when I was unconscious, and I think they were ready to take me home, but when I came back, they all disappeared then." And, and Fred Bolhoffer, the ER doc, said, this is not an unusual uh, event. This kind of thing happens on a regular basis, and it's in the literature. It's in our, our ER literature that this thing happens more than just an occasional basis. So I think those, those, those people that were close to him were looking out for him and, and, and ready to take him back to wherever you go. Uh, most of the doctors think it's heaven uh, when, he, when he died, when he arrested. So, because these events happen so frequently, it's actually in the ER literature, you say. Uh, I'm yes. curious, like, in, in, in your personal training in med school or or even some training you took after med school, d- did anything ever crop up that said, hey, prepare yourself because weird stuff might happen? Never. Never was okay. this talked about. Never was this <laughs> mentioned. Um, you know, you have a few funny experiences in, in med school, but... but uh, you know, you, you just you write them off commonly as like a coincidence, and 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 
you don't think about them as, as something supernatural or spiritual or divine or anything like that. But, you know, in retrospect, now that I've gotten into this a little bit and seen some of these things that have happened, there are a number of things that I can look back at and say, you know, that wasn't a coincidence. There was something going on there that, that really was strange and, and incredible. Um, I, I can give you a few examples if you want. Sure, uh, absolutely. Yes, yes, yeah. I, I was um, uh, I was uh, trying to get into medical school uh, for a long time because I was kind of a fool around in college. I, I changed my major from pre-med to economics, and um, uh, it wasn't the greatest student. I was a you know, B average, a little bit above a B, but but not you know an A student like most of the medical pre-med students are nowadays. And so I, I finished with my economics degree, and then I decided to go back to, to medical school, which is what I wanted to do originally. And so I had to take a number of classes and courses and things, and one of the classes I had to take was organic chemistry. And I decided, since I had a family already, I was getting a little older, that I, I only had one more year. Now, I, I had to get into organic chemistry this particular year. If I didn't, I would have to get a real job, support my family, and then move on with my life. So there were two, I was working a job in, in uh, Aurora, Illinois, and there was a Aurora University that offered organic chemistry at nighttime, which was great because I could take it at nighttime. And there was Roosevelt University in Chicago also offered it, which is about 70 miles away. So I, I went to the bookstore, bought, bought the book, and there were like a 40 or 50 books on the bookshelves. And I thought, this is great. There'll be a bunch of students in the class. I went to the first class, and there were three students there. And then I thought, well, you know, maybe this will give me lots of personal attention. Well, the professor walked in and said, you know, I'm sorry, this." You know, there are so few people in this class, we have to cancel a class. Well, I, you know, I got sick because I thought my medical school career is over. If I don't get into medical, if I don't get into organic chemistry, I won't get into medical school and so forth. Then I realized, well, I can go to Roosevelt University and enroll in organic chemistry there. So the next day, I made some lame excuse to my, uh, my boss, and I went down to Roosevelt University, waited in line to get into their organic chemistry class, which started the next day. And the head of the, when I got to the head of the line, I talked with the registrar and I said, "Listen, I, you know, I'm, I'm um, going to go into medical school. I need to get organic chemistry at, at night, and I'd like to enroll in your class." And she said, "I'm very sorry. We have one full class that we normally offer. We opened up a second class, which is full, and we have ten people on the waiting list." And I said, to her, "Well, you don't understand. If I don't get into organic chemistry, I'll be a failure. <laughs> I won't be a doctor." I'll have to get a real job and, and get on with my life. And she said, I'm sorry, everyone in this, these 10 people in the waiting list had the same story that you do. So I said to her, well, who, who can I talk to that can, can get me into organic chemistry? Who's the person that makes the ultimate decision? And she said, well, it's the professor. I said, well, where does the professor live? And she said, well, three, room 302 upstairs. And if you go up there, I think they're meeting right now. So I ran up the stairs, stumbling half the way. And I got to a room that was filled with students. And they were all after the same thing I was. So I, I must have looked like a sad sack talking to the to the secretary there, and I said, I, just give me three minutes with the professor, and that's all I need, and I'll, I'll never grace your doors again, and, and I'll, I'll, you'll be done with me. And she said, okay. Uh, so I'm not sure why I, I stepped ahead of all, everyone else in, in the room, uh, and they all gave me dirty looks, but I walked to the ante room, which is where the prof there were two professors talking about the situation and the class that they would have the next day, that both professors were teaching organic chemistry, one each class. And the door was paper thin, and I didn't mean to listen, but I did listen because it was so thin. And I could hear them inside, and they were saying, 
we don't know what to do. We don't have any books. We called the publisher. We have books for the first class, but the second class has no books. And the class starts tomorrow. We've called every school in the area. No one has any books in organic chemistry. The publisher's out. And I don't know what we're going to do. And they went on like that for a few minutes. And finally, they opened the door. The one professor walked out, and the professor that was inside signaled for me to come in. And he looked very uninterested. And as I told him my story, he looked more and more uninterested. And I said, I've got to get into organic chemistry. If I don't, I'll be a failure in life, and so forth. And he said, I'm very sorry. You know, everyone in this room has that same story, and I just can't let you in the class. Well, I realized these were desperate times and it called for desperate measures. So I, I said to him, if I can get the book, if I can get your books for your next class, will you let me in the class? And all of a sudden, I got his attention. I could, his eyebrows went up, his eyes opened up. He looked at me, and my heart by this point was beating in my chest very fast because I knew this was, this was my life in, in front of me here. And he said, he said to me, after a long pause, can you get me 30? I said to him, more. And he opened his eyes even wider, and he said, you're in. <laughs> so I made it. I got into organic chemistry. I told him where the books were. They got plenty of books for the next class. Now, I thought that was a coincidence, but what do you think the coincidence is that I would be right there at the very time they were talking about the books that they needed, where only I could help them and only they could help me? That's more than a coincidence. Oh, I think I, I think we, we talk about this kind of stuff on the show on a regular basis. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Exactly this kind of stuff. Uh, being in the right place at the right time uh, through non-linear means, as we call them. Mm-hmm. And you just happen to see a whole bunch of these specific books just overflowing on the shelves in another store. <laughs> you know, there were so many funny coincidences that it just couldn't be coincidental. And after I, after I started hearing some of these doctor stories, I thought back and I thought to myself, this was not a coincidence. I was meant to go to medical school and this was the way I, I had to do it. And so I, I, was, I was pretty humbled by, by, by that thought. And what's interesting, you know, in, in my office, I love to tell these stories. Uh, and I, I'm always late, I think, seeing patients because I'm always telling stories and talking with people. But when I tell these stories to, to patients, they remember stories that they've had that they tell back to me. And they said, I thought this was a coincidence, too. But, you know, maybe it wasn't. And uh, we had one, one guy who's trying to get his daughter into uh, an internship in New York City. And he couldn't afford a, a, the apartment or the hotel where she could stay for three months. And so he was, she was going to have to give up her internship. Well, that night he got a, uh, had a dream about a person that he'd, he'd known for a long time, but 20 years ago. I hadn't talked with him for 15 or 20 years. And an interesting thing is the next day that individual called him up. And he said, I just wanted to talk with you because uh, I just had a feeling I needed to call you. And I, I wanted to tell you about what I've done with my life. I'm now retired. I'm, I've been a very successful businessman. I've made lots of money. I've been very successful. I live in a four-bedroom apartment in the middle of New York City. No one lives with me. I'm kind of lonely. And the fellow with the daughter said, well, I, I've got a daughter that wants to uh, look, uh, was looking for an apartment. Do you think you could put her up? And he said, absolutely. Send her over. I'll feed her, put her up. We'll, we'll see some shows. We'll have a great time. And that worked out beautifully. Now, what's the what, what kind of coincidence is that? And he thought it was a coincidence until after I told him a few of my stories. And he said, you know, now I realize this, this was something that wasn't a coincidence. This was meant to be. And it was so bizarre that it happened, you know, right when I needed it. And I think that's what you guys are talking about, Andrea mm-hmm. and, and Jason. Yeah, yeah we, 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 we talk about building these uh, 
coincidences on a more regular basis by, well, basically by training. We talk about that a lot on the, the show. So, and uh, attaining more and more of these coincidences. We, we probably could add to, to your stories about these kind of coincidences that would uh, be amazing because uh, it's, a, it's a common topic for our show. Let's put it that way. <laughs> That's great. Well, I'm looking for more stories for my next book. It's, uh, we're going to do a couple more books, one about clergy and priests, one about uh, doctors, and one about nurses. I think the nurses may be the next one. So if any nurses are listening, I'd love to hear some strange stories about things that you can't explain. Well, and we would certainly love to have you back to talk about some more of these stories, too, when you get the other books ready. That's great. That's great. Um, <clears throat> so has this has this affected your private life? Have, have you taken on any new topics of research? Have you been uh, – I know, obviously, you're still collecting stories because you wish to, to share more, and you obviously care a lot about people. It's, it's very relevant to your book that – you care about your patients, you care about your colleagues, and you love to spread this information around. But have you been provoked to do any more scientific research on your end? You know, I'm, I'm, I'm. When you do a book like this, a lot of people come come to you with with uh, networking and so forth. And I've discovered uh, uh, there are quite a few uh, researchers out there that are doing this kind of research and. Um, I'm, I'm hooking up with them and, and, and seeing what they're doing. And so I'm pretty busy myself in order to do research. I've got seven kids. Again, I don't know where they came from, but I've got seven <laughs> kids. Some of them are adopted, but I've forgotten which ones now in my old age. Uh, I've got a busy practice. And so just to, to do these stories was, you know, uh, using up my abundant leisure time from midnight to 2 a.m., so I don't have time to do that much research, but I love to collect these stories, and I'm collecting more and more, and I'm hooking up with some people that are doing research. And and this, you know, up until about four years ago, I didn't. This is a whole area that I didn't even realize existed. And what also is interesting about what what's happened to me is, is that now that I'm reading about these stories and 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 and. You know, what I did is just collect stories and wrote, wrote them out. I didn't know if anything like this had ever happened to anyone else. But, you know, you guys telling me that you do a lot of work with coincidences and the stories that I'm hearing of near-death experiences and so forth are almost identical to the stories that I heard and have written from the doctors. So that there must be a whole collection of these kinds of things that are happening to people more than just what I've written here, but but they're very similar, which which blows my mind that lots of things are happening very much just like the doctors described. Awesome. So as we're coming up toward the end of the hour, um, are you going to be doing any speaking engagements, any book signings, anything of that nature you'd like our audience to know about? There's a um, there's a big uh, book uh, a, a, a talk I'm giving. There's a retreat for priests, and also it's a, a big Catholic retreat uh, in uh, St. Charles. It's in uh, Pheasant Run, coming up April 29th and 30th. It'll be between 700 and 1,000 people and, and religious people there, and I'll be talking there. There'll be a book signing also there. Um, I have uh, our website is uh, physiciansuntoldstories.com and and uh, it'll announce my other speaking engagements uh, and we're doing more and more speaking more and more podcasts 
the word is getting out that uh, this is uh, uh, it's an unusual thing to have doctors have these experiences, and I'm I'm discovering that because you know other people have had experiences, but a group of doctors uh, together uh, to have these experiences is a little unusual. I'm finding so people are interested in, in hearing this, and wherever I go or wherever I speak, they have record audiences. They're overflowed overflowing so it's been fun and gratifying and, and, and it's been fun to, to be on your program to get the word out and I guess from what you're saying a lot of a lot of the stuff that you guys are talking about is the same kind of stuff that that I've, I've written about too oh my, most, most definitely my book is physicians untold stories and it's available through Amazon uh, primarily as a Kindle or a, or a soft cover and uh, we're, we're doing really well through word of mouth, and, and uh, the word is spreading, and I'm, I'm delighted. I think this is giving people hope that there's something else in the world and giving them uh, uh, a, reason, a reason to live and a reason to, uh, 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 to, to have hope. I think if you enjoy these, these kinds of stories, I highly recommend this book. It was a very, very well put together, um, nice read. Um, is it, it really made you connect to what was going on with these people personally. Another part of the book, Jason, was uh, uh, some of the stuff I just learned. You know, when you get to talk to doctors in a deep, in, about deeper things like this, you get to know their true personality and, and what mm-hmm. makes them sick. And um, I found some just amazing things that, uh, about the doctors. Uh, one doctor, a cardiologist, for example, I, I was telling him about a, a little girl that was up for adoption that would never be adopted. She had burned feet because she slept too close to a space heater with plastic shoes on, and she could never walk again. And after about a week, he called me up and said, we'd like to take that girl and adopt her. And I said, well, you know nothing about her. She could have all kinds of other medical problems. And he said, it doesn't matter because she's in trouble. I'd like to help her, and we'd like to adopt her. And that wasn't an unusual circumstance. Those are the kinds of things I heard on a regular basis from doctors, who I eventually called a bunch of sappy do-gooders. Because they were out <laughs> to save the world, to cure cancer, to, to do good things every day. And I was amazed. Doctors sometimes get a bad rap. But the doctors that I've written about in this book are, are a bunch of those kinds of do-gooders. Uh, and it was fun to, fun to write about that and, and to make people realize that they are really caring individuals, almost all of them. And it was, it was fun to put that in paper. Well, it's good that you're doing it, sir, because I think like with a lot of a lot of people in our society right now tend to focus on the negative and it's the negative that gets the press. Yes. That's true. Well, there we are at the end of the hour. Just like that. Every week it's the same. Goes by it's like five minutes. I wanna thank you, Doctor Kobaba, for coming out and spending your time with us. Um glad that you're able to share these stories with us it's it's obvious once again that you you really care about these people and you really care about what was going on so thank you for sharing and giving your personal take on things jason andrea thank you very much for having me on the show it's a pleasure you asked some great questions and i hope your readers uh enjoy this and and uh get a feeling of of uh hope and satisfaction that there's something else out there uh that looks out for them we would love to have you come back on the show, and hopefully this time I, I don't screw up the intro music the next time, like I did this time. <laughs> it happens. Um, but it was, uh, Thank you. To the Luminous, I'm going to try to play our music on out. I want to thank everyone for listening tonight. <laughs>